50%, over 50% of Canadians identify themselves as a Christian. They confess, even if in name only, that they are a Christian. That is the confession that they make. And I've told this story before, but it illustrates it well. One time I was uh, with a group of my coworkers, and uh, we were talking. I can't remember what we were talking about, but out of nowhere, someone said, Aaron, what's your religion? What are you all about? And I said, oh, I'm a Christian. To which he replied, we're all Christians. I mean, what kind of Christian? He thought that everyone in the room was a Christian. Maybe because they grew up growing to church, uh, growing up uh, going to church, or uh, I don't know, live in Canada. For whatever reason, this man thought we're all Christians, and the stats would say that. I don't know. I was surprised to see that over fifty percent of Canadians would confess that they are a Christian. And so, a question for us to ask is: Is that a true confession? Is that a right confession? Now, 50% of those 50%, so 25% of the population, uh, 50% of those who say that they, are, uh, they identify as a Christian, have not participated in any way in any kind of religious activity over the last year. And so a question for us to ask would be saying, uh, is that a right confessor? Is that a right confession, and is that a right confessor? These questions, the what and the who of the gospel, are important questions for us to answer. What is a true, what is the true gospel, and then who is a true gospel confessor? What is the true gospel, and who is a true gospel confessor? It's an important question for us to ask and answer as a church. Uh, And that doesn't come from nowhere. The Bible speaks clearly about that being our responsibility in the church, to guard the what and the who of the gospel. What is a true gospel confession, and who is a true gospel confessor? Well, for those that have been with us uh, at least last week, you know that we are doing something unusual, something that we've never done before, a topical preaching series where we're taking a few different topics, specifically in this case around the local church, and we're drilling deep on those topics over the course of a few weeks. And so you picked a great week to be here. I see some unfamiliar faces. I see some visitors. You picked a good week to, to find out more about what we're about as a church. Uh, we have a definition that I've totally ripped off from somebody else of what a local church is, uh, and you'll find that in your bulletin, because admittedly, it is a little bit clunky, okay? This might get the old mark of a run-on sentence, Uh, but I'll read it out loud. The definition, according to this author, uh, says, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So last week, we set the baseline of what a local church is. We talked about how a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. And we stopped there. We're, we're just working through this definition piece by piece. If you missed that, uh, you, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. I think it would encourage you. And it sort of sets the stage for some assumptions that we then bring in to our time together this morning. Assumptions about how we are called to gather together as God's people. That according to Scripture, we are not meant to be dismembered from 
the body of Christ. We are meant to be in fellowship, a committed fellowship to one another. And then in the next coming weeks, we're going to be breaking down those last sections, uh, gospel preaching, a sermon on preaching. That'll be an interesting endeavor. And then gospel ordinances. We'll be talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, those are the sections that I would say are the most clear. Whether they're the most understood is a different question, but they're at least clear. We can say a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. That's what we looked at last week. And then we can say through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. The part that probably gets a little clunky and might have lost us is that middle section, the meaty middle of this definition, which says to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that is where we find ourselves this morning, digging into exactly that topic. Now again, we're going to be covering a lot of ground, and so I welcome questions after the service, or if you want to reach out to me through the week, please do so. But that's the section that we're going to be looking at. And I want to reassure you that we are not building our church on a definition from an author. As good of a book as it comes from, as good of an author as he is, is as much as we agree with this statement, we want to build the foundation on God's word. And so the passages that I'm going to be looking at, I'm going to be looking at two passages to support this, uh, to, to demonstrate where this comes from, that we are to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And those two passages are both found in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you uh, would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels. It's one of the four uh, descriptions of the life of Christ, the life and ministry of Christ. And so the book of Matthew is a, a big book, and so it's about that far through your Bible. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, that's where you'll find it. Uh, tap someone on the shoulder next to you. They'll help you find it. Uh, the book of Matthew, and then we're going to be in chapter 16 and chapter 18. The chapters are the big numbers that you'll find in your Bibles. Uh, those are our chapters, so chapter 16. And then the small numbers are our verses. And uh, we're going to be, you'll see the verse numbers in your bulletin, but verses 13 through 19 of chapter 16, and then 15 through 20 of chapter 18. A bit convoluted, I know, but ask for help. Someone will help you. We've got some helpful people around here. But these two passages, the reason I want to look at these is these are the two places in all of the Gospels, these are the two places in everything Jesus said that we have recorded here where he specifically uses the word church. It's only in these two passages. Now, often he talks about his people. Often there's many, 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 many implications for the church. But these are the two sections where he explicitly says the church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And the reason I'm preaching out of both these passages is I hope you see they are so closely tethered together. There is a link between them. And so as I read them, I want you to watch for that link between these two passages because these passages admittedly can be a little bit cryptic. Uh, they can, they, we, can, we can miss some things if we just look at it in isolation. And this, we could be tempted to just kind of skip over, say, oh, this was Jesus just being poetic. I don't really know what to do with this. Well, this is incredibly important as we ask these questions, what is a good gospel confession and who is a good gospel confessor? And that is part of our job description as church members. And so we don't do this every week, but would you stand with me as I read God's word? It's a helpful reminder for us uh, to stand every once in a while, just to sort of uh, shake things up in our own minds and remind us that it is God's word that is authoritative. It is what we need for understanding our lives and understanding doctrine. And so it's helpful for us to acknowledge the fact that uh, God's word is set apart. 
As Robert Murray McShane said, it's God's word that saves souls, not our comment on God's word. And so, let's hear God's word. And if you believe it is God's word, when I'm done reading, I would encourage you to, with joy and like you mean it, say thanks be to God. So I'm going to be reading both passages, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Let's hear what Holy Scripture says. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then let's turn over to Matthew 18. Verses 15 to 20, and watch for the link. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two uh, or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Take a seat. Now, you'll see the structure of this sermon is not quite as slick as normal. I try to, you know, give you a couple points and things to work with. The outline is a little bit more convoluted. You'll see in your bulletins. Uh, the first half of the sermon, roughly, we're going to just look at these passages just to get a hold and understand what is going on here. Uh, and so I've listed a bunch of questions there for you. Five questions which you are welcome to ask and answer for yourself if that helps you kind of work through the text and not get lost. I hope it encourages you. But if it does, if it's something that would confuse you, just ignore these questions on there. Just, I'd rather you just listen. Uh, so that's that first section. And then we're going to go into asking the question, what, uh, that the, or looking at the assumption that comes from this text, that the job of every member is to affirm the true gospel, and the job of every member is to affirm true gospel citizens. Okay, but first, the text we see in Matthew 16 first this situation where Jesus is with his disciples. And I would encourage you to read some of the wider context, what's coming before Matthew 16 and what's happening between Matthew 16 and 18 and after 18. Just, you know, just read the whole book of Matthew. How about you do that this week? And that'll, it'll help you kind of fit these things in context. But here, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he asks them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now already, I think it's nine times already through the Gospel of Matthew, 
that Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. That's not a common phrase that we would talk about, uh, but it's a way that Jesus talks about himself. And so we know from this question he's asking, he's saying, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And so the disciples reply, as we saw, they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They're saying, you know, you are, uh, people are saying, you're a good man. Maybe you're speaking for God. You're a prophet of some sort. That seems to be the, the rumblings of what people are saying. But then I wonder if Jesus interrupted them as they're saying, or oh, one of the prophets, but hey, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Maybe there was a long pregnant pause. I don't know. But he turns the conversation and says, but who do you say that I am? The you here, we don't have a word. I mean, we do. It's just, it's only used in the states to understand how the word you is used in plural. Y'all. That's what he, Jesus is saying here. He's saying to all of his disciples, who do y'all say that I am? So the Americans have an upper hand in understanding words like this. Uh, who do y'all say that I am? Who do you all say that I am? And then Simon Peter one of the disciples pipes up. He's not one to be shy to speak. We'll see if you keep reading uh, later in Matthew 16. He puts his foot right in his mouth when he speaks uh, quickly. But he stands up and speaks. And maybe he's speaking on behalf of the other disciples. Maybe he's speaking for himself. But he stands up and he makes a good confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Those words can roll over us if we grew up in the church. Those are, that's a bold claim. That is a bold proclamation. That is a good confession. Because he's not saying you are, well, first of all, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I think of Jesus Christ. It's, that's not his last name. Christ is a title. Christ means anointed one, chosen one. We may think of the word Messiah that's what Christ means. So he's saying, you are the Christ. And, he's, and note there, he's not saying, you are a Christ. You are the Christ. You are not a son of the living God. He's saying, you are the son of the living God. Peter hits a home run on this. He makes a good, true confession of the identity of Christ. And this is critical to this whole passage and then even understanding Matthew 18. Peter here is making a good confession. And then Jesus affirms it in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now we see Simon Peter, two names. So he's saying Simon Barjona means son of Jonah. This is not the Jonah that is famous in the Bible, the prophet. This is uh, another Jonah, Peter's dad. So he's saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he acknowledges an important fact too. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this is not Peter's intellect. This is not Peter, you know, rising to come up with this confession all on his own. This is God's work. God reveals this to Peter. And Peter makes a good confession. And so as we get this far in the passage, I want to ask a question that I really don't want you to ignore. Maybe you've ignored most of what, you know, it's just kind of in one ear, out the other. Please hear me on this. We all must ask ourselves this same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Don't leave here today without asking and answering that question for yourself. Who is Jesus? Is he a, a prophet? Is he a 
a good man? Is he a moral uh, exemplar? Is he a fictional figure? Or is he the Christ, the son of the living God? That's who the Bible says that he is. That's who Peter confesses that he is. That, that who Jesus is, is he is the divine son of God. Who God sent to the earth as a baby. We celebrate that at Christmas time. But he sent him to come and live a sinless life. To come and live a life that none of us could ever live. Because you and I, I hate to break it to you, you we are like Peter. We put our foot in our mouth, we rebel, we sin, we do all kinds of things. We sin, we rebel against God. But Jesus came to live a completely set apart, a completely different life, a life of perfection. And he came for the fact that he would die, pay the penalty for sin, for all who would sin. It was a glorious hope for us. Because we cannot outwork our sin. We cannot you know, rise to a bar of hoping to be just good enough to tip the scales that God would look at us and say, yeah, I'll let him in. You know, that's not the way it works. Our sin is outright rebellion against a perfect and holy God. God is just. And we might not like the concept of it, but he is a good judge. If we looked at any judge who just let people off, you know, willy-nilly, we would say that is a bad judge. God is a good judge. He cannot let sin go unpunished. But in God's kindness, he sent his own son into the world to live this sinless life, yet die the death that we deserve. And then to rise from the dead. That's what we celebrate at Easter. To rise from the dead in victory and glory. Defeating death itself. Defeating sin. Demonstrating that God's just wrath against sin has been satisfied. And he did all this so that we could turn to him turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone, in Jesus for salvation. That by God's work in our hearts, we too could make a good confession. We could look to Christ and say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. And so ask yourself that question today. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? If you have questions about that, talk to the person who invited you or Come talk to me after the service. I would love to answer your questions or uh, encourage you in answering that question because maybe you don't feel like you have an answer. But here, Peter makes a good confession. Jesus affirms it. But then here's where things get a little bit tricky, right? We're with it so far. But then in verses 18 and 19, Jesus then says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These are tricky, tricky bits, but we're just going to work through it. And, and the questions that sort of get asked as we read through this section is, what is this rock that Jesus is talking about? What is the rock that the church is built on? What are the keys of the kingdom? What is this binding and loosing? And we're going to move quickly through these, but we're going to go answer each of those in turn. So what is this rock? that the church is being built on. Now, there's been debate for a long time. What is this rock? Is it talking about Peter? Is Peter the rock? Or is this talking about Peter's confession, this, this good confession that Peter just made? What is the church being built on? I think the best answer is both. It's hard to separate someone and their confession. 
that when Jesus is saying here is we can't just completely disconnect Peter from the equation. He makes it very clear. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And maybe your Bible has a little footnote uh, that marks the fact that the name Peter means stone or rock. And so Jesus is using a play on words here. He's saying, you are Peter, rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, he's not using the same word. Peter is Petros, and rock is Petra. They're very close words, so it's this play on words. And they're different kinds of rocks. Uh, Peter, it's more like a stone that you could pick up. This Petra, this word for rock, is like a bedrock, like rock that's immovable. It's like a cliff or a, a, a rock underground, the bedrock. And so he's, he, he could have said, you know, you are Peter, and on you I will build my church. Or you are, are Peter, Petros, and on this Petros I will build my church. So it kind of leads us into a bit of a question. It does seem like he's talking about Peter, but it also seems like he's drawing a bit of a distinction here. And so that's why I think it's helpful for us to acknowledge the fact that it's likely both that he's saying here. Because we do see that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Peter does take a role in leadership in the church. Although he's a bit of a dope at times, he nails it here, uh, but then he has some highs and lows and all these things. But then he does rise up to be a leader in the church. But then even once he's become a leader, he doesn't become infallible. He doesn't become the foundation for the church. He messes up. He needs to get called out later by Paul in Galatians. We can read about that. But he does play a foundational role. So that's why I do think there is value in saying, yeah, there is something going on here about Petros, Peter, the, being the rock. But also, we can't separate this good confession. That it really is a firm foundation that the, the people who confess Christ is what the church would be built up of and on. Because Jesus here seems to be concerned about both those things I introduced at the beginning, a what and a who. What is a good gospel confession and who is a good gospel confessor? He affirms what Peter says, that that is the Lord's doing, that is the Father's doing in his life, in his heart, and he's affirming Peter himself. What is a good gospel confession and who is a good gospel confessor? So Jesus has just done this. He stood before Peter and said, yes, what you have said is true. And on this rock I will build my church. And then he does something which kind of blindsides us. Even when we're tracking that far, then it seems like he hands over that authority of what he just did for Peter of affirming this gospel confession and this gospel confessor, good news confession, good news confessor, he then hands over to Peter. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing, it's not words we would use very often, but they're, they're just plain words for uh, binding and loosing, like tying and untying. The, another time we see these exact words is in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. He's bound up with cloth, and, and Jesus says there, well, there he says, unbind him, but it's the same word for loose. So it's just bind and loose. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter, he's saying, I have given you the keys now. I need you to do what I have just done for you, to affirm this gospel confession and affirm true gospel confessors. And when you are acting in line with heaven, you make declarative statements on behalf of heaven in this binding and this loosing. Now, 
we may feel like, whoa, did we just, we moved really fast there to get to that point. Well, a lot of that understanding comes from where Jesus applies the keys of the kingdom, this binding and loosing in Matthew 18. And so in Matthew 18, I hope you noticed the connection between these two passages. It's that exact phrase where he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Because we may wonder, after reading Matthew 16, wow, Jesus just gave some serious authority to the apostles. He just gave them an authority to speak on behalf of heaven in a a crazy way. But then, only a few chapters later, we see him apply this exact truth to the life of the church. And actually, that authority being given to the church. And so we see that right here in Matthew 18, where this situation where uh, there is a brother in the church who has made a good confession at some point. If, he, if he's a brother, it's saying he has, he's part of the family, he's in the church, but he's sinned. And someone approaches him one-on-one and says, you've sinned against me. And he ignores it. Then he brings two or three other witnesses to this person. Still, this person is not willing to let go of their sin. Then it says it escalates to such a point that then they're to take it to, not to find their apostolic delegate or find the apostle, it's to take it to the church. And then if this person doesn't listen to the church, the church is to act by treating them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now these aren't, it's not a a racial or status dig. It's a way of saying that these are the people that are outside of the covenant of promise. These people are outside of uh, this covenant community and family. And so we have to now treat them as if they're not a brother. And that sounds harsh, but that's what he's saying. He's saying they, they may have made a good gospel confession, but they no longer appear to be a good gospel confessor. And that's when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so what he's saying here in Matthew 18, as he applies the keys of the kingdom, he is giving a demonstration of the opposite side. What he did for Peter was bind. He affirmed this profession, this confession, which is uh, true and good. But in Matthew 18, he applies it, and he shows this is what happens when there's a bad confession and a bad confessor that we need to loose. And he says, in, in again, a radical way of thinking, that when two uh, of you ag- on earth agree about anything, it will be done to them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's not saying if two or three of you get together and you decide, all right, the sky's going to be red now. That's not how things work, that that's just going to now be fact. This is saying when two or three of you gather together and you act uh, in line with God's will, when the assembled church comes together, you have now an authority, a responsibility. You've been handed the keys of the kingdom to do exactly this, this binding and loosing, to make declarations on behalf of heaven. Now, very clearly, hear me on this. Binding and loosing is not making or unmaking someone a Christian. So we don't have the authority given to us as the church to declare, wow, you are a Christian now, or you are not a Christian now. But we have the authority from God to say, well, you know, it looks like it checks out. That looks like a good confession. And, oh, you know, your life seems to line up with that. You look like a good confessor. And that's exactly what's being applied in Matthew 18, that although this person had made a good confession, they are not living like a good confessor, and the church must bind and loose in obedience to Christ. 
Now, the apostles played a foundational role, but we see that it's not the apostles here who exclusively are given the keys of the kingdom. We might see that from Matthew 16, but then not in Matthew 18. We may see in churches today that it's pastors and leaders who even take the lead on matters of church discipline and lead the church in that way. But it's not the pastors and elders who are given the authority to bind and loose. It's the church, the assembled congregation, where they gather in the name of Christ that the church corporately does this binding and loosing work. Official authority is given to the church, the assembled people of God. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've got a lot of theory happening here, but let's review. Peter makes a good confession. Jesus affirms that good confession. He affirms what is a good confession and who is a a good confessor. Then he passes on that binding and loosing authority to Peter and the apostles. But then when he applies that in Matthew 18, we get a case study of how this binding and loosing works. We see that it's not just the apostles. It's not just the pastors and teachers. It's the whole church that makes these declarations about the what and the who of the gospel. What is a true gospel confession and who is a true gospel confessor? We've covered a lot of ground. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for the local church? Well, first, it means that it's the job of every member to affirm the true gospel. It is the job of every member to affirm the true gospel. Again, we don't have to throw out, uh, there's two streams that run through the Bible about uh, elder, elders leading the church and the congregation being able to make these kinds of decisions. We don't have to pick one or the other. We see these streams run together and come together in times like this. So elders will lead in affirming what is the true gospel, but it is the church that has that responsibility. There's a great book on this exact topic about a church member's responsibility, and the title is called, it's written to pastors, it's saying, don't fire your church members. You've been given a job to do. When Jesus applies this in Matthew 18, he's saying it's the church who is to make these kinds of decisions, make these kinds of declarations. And so we do a disservice against these kinds of passages if we fire you as a church member from your job. You have the job to affirm the true gospel. And there's going to be different times in the life of our church where you're going to rely on elders more than others. If something is uh, not clear and it's not really that serious, like, uh, I don't know, maybe we wanted to get a new logo uh, for our church. If you wanted a new logo, uh, you may have an opinion on that, but the Bible doesn't speak clearly about what the logo of our church needs to be. And... uh, It's not a serious issue. And so you would say, yeah, I don't need to worry about that. That doesn't necessarily have to be the elders who make that decision, but I'm willing to delegate some of that authority. I don't need to make that call. Now, there's more significant things, the things around maybe the ministries of the church, the way a church conducts their children's ministry or their small group ministry. These are important topics, uh, but the Bible doesn't give us uh, exact play-by-play of how those things should be done. And so uh, those are great opportunities to, to really lean heavily on spiritual leaders but where the bible talks about serious and clear things that is what it seems is the responsibility of the assembled congregation and a serious and clear thing is the true gospel it is the responsibility of the church to affirm the what of the gospel what is the true gospel 
We can see examples of this. When Paul writes to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, he says this. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the, uh, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. Note that. He's writing to the church in Galatia. He doesn't address it to the elders and says, hey, get your people together. They're blowing it. He writes to the Christians. They are responsible for this gospel that is preached. And then he goes on. But even uh, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said it before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. So this responsibility to affirm the what of the gospel, what is the true gospel, is the responsibility of the church. It's your responsibility if you are a member of this church. It's your responsibility here that if I or anyone else who stands behind this pulpit preaches a different gospel, not that there is a different, I love that he wrote that in there, not that there is a different gospel, there's no such thing as another good news, that you have the responsibility to deal with that. You should fire me if I preach another gospel. Now, what we're talking about here is not secondary or tertiary doctrines. There's going to be things that you and I disagree with. And we need to work those things out. But if I start preaching another gospel, that there's another way to salvation, or if I start making light of clear sin in the Bible, and I say, that's not sin. We don't have to worry about that. That's another gospel. And that is the responsibility of the church to affirm what is and is not the true gospel. When uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he, he writes to Timothy, and he talks about how at some point it's the Christians who are uh, going to find teachers to suit their own passions. Again, he's not, he does definitely condemn false teachers many times, but he's saying it's the responsibility of Christians to not do this. To not, it matters that Christians are the ones who affirm what is and is not the true gospel. And they do that in part by what teaching they sit under. And so you have a responsibility, church, to affirm the true gospel. That is the what of the gospel. What is a true gospel confession? Second, it is the job of every member to affirm true gospel citizens. This is the authority that's explained in Matthew 16 and then applied in Matthew 18. When we assemble in Christ's name, he is with us. And he has given us this authority to bind and loose. Again, not to make and unmake Christians, but to officially act on behalf of heaven in line with God's will and officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I've been helped by thinking about it in this way. This is not original to me. But thinking of the local church like an embassy. We're familiar with embassies, right? There's a Canadian embassy in other countries. And the Canadian embassy exists as a local outpost of Canada. It exists as a local outpost. It represents Canada to the other nations. And if I walked into a... Canadian embassy in another country, and I said, I declare that I am a Canadian citizen. They would 
do their due diligence. They would say, all right, show me your paperwork. What's your name? What's your background? They would ask these kinds of questions, and at some point, I truly am a Canadian citizen, they would say, yes, we affirm that you are a Canadian citizen. And now, now you obviously are able to participate in all the privileges that come with being a Canadian citizen. Now, they would not be a very good embassy if they just say, yeah, I guess if you say so, sure, you're a citizen. They don't have that kind of power. They can't make me a citizen if I walk in and declare that I'm a citizen, but they can officially affirm my citizenship. A local church is a local outpost of God's kingdom. Functions like an embassy, represents God's kingdom to the world around us. And so if someone comes into a church, not a church building, again, the community, we talked about this last week, the ecclesia, the assembly of Christians. If someone comes in and says, I am a gospel citizen, I am a Christian, we as a church, if we are rightly exercising the keys of the kingdom, this binding and loosing, we will do our due diligence. We will say, all right, tell me how were you saved? What's your story? Where is your hope? Who do you say that Jesus is? We don't have the authority or the ability to make someone a gospel citizen. We can't make you be a Christian. But from these keys of the kingdom texts, this binding and loosing, the church has the authority to officially, just like an embassy, affirm gospel citizenship. We've been given the authority to officially affirm gospel citizens. Now, that process looks different in different churches. And there's many, many places in the world, and specifically in the first century, as we read through the New Testament, where I don't think you had to have quite so many checks and balances to ask those questions. Are you a true gospel citizen? Because there's many places in the world, just like it was in the first century, where to say, I declare that I follow Christ, is potentially a death sentence. There are many places in the world where if you say that, you are baptized in the name of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a Christian, your family disowns you. That is a massive check on the way in for a church to say, wow, okay, they're willing to to bear the name of Christ? Well, welcome in, brother or sister. We don't live in that kind of culture here. And so we don't want to create impossible walls or protocols or barriers, but we do want to be a good steward of this authority that's been handed to us. We want to do our due diligence for the sake of the purity of the church, for the good of the individuals in the church, for the sake of the church's witness, and for the glory of God. And so I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it or hide anything. The basic thing we do, if someone approaches us and says, I want to become a member of this church, we ask very basic questions. And I'm spoiling it for you here. You want to take notes if you ever want to become a member here. These are the questions we ask. How did God save you? We want to know that. That's a good thing to ask. How did God save you? And what is the gospel? Sometimes I'll say in 60 seconds or less, what is the good news? And you don't need to come up with this beautifully articulated, flowy, uh, I don't know, acrostic or alliteration or whatever. You just need to tell me what's your hope. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's That's the bar. That's how we bind and loose. And we then can say, wow, it looks like things check out. We are not perfect. We are not flawless. We can't see your heart. We can't make you a Christian. But we can say, it looks to me like you are a gospel citizen. 
And so let's associate together. Let's link arms on mission for the glory of God. And so you can write those questions down. How did God save you? What is the gospel? There's a few other questions, but they're not, that's the meat and potatoes, right? That's the important bit. That's how we, as to the best of our understanding and the way churches have done it for a long time, is to, to take care in officially affirming and overseeing one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It's how we assess the what of the gospel. What do you believe is a good gospel confession and the who of the gospel? Who is a good gospel confessor? Does your life line up with what you're saying? And I really want you to hear this. Okay, I'm closing with this. Each of these things, whether we, this is the way our, even our church functions in admitting members, where we bind ourselves together as one family, or when we have to do the hard, hard work of formative and corrective church discipline, which is having to say, you, you no longer seem to be a good confessor. You, you, you've said something, but you're not living in a way that is, is making that true. You are holding on to your sin instead of holding on to Christ. And so whether it's on the way in or the way out, whether it's in the binding of the loosing, I want you to hear me at this. It demonstrates love. Each of these things demonstrates love. First, it demonstrates love for those inside the church. It would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do for you if you said and came and said, I'm a gospel citizen. And I said, right on. I think so too, if I know nothing about you. Because what if you're not? For me to affirm and say, yeah, oh yeah, you're good. You are safe. You are clear. That I could, there's nothing more unloving I could possibly do. And it loves those inside the church that if, if we err, if we sin, there's nothing more unloving I could do. I've used this illustration a lot of times. Imagine there's a train bearing down on me right now. Just imagine the train tracks running right through here. If the train is bearing down on me, if you love me, you will say, Aaron, get out of the way. If you refuse to do that, you fail to love one another. You fail to love those inside the church. Right? How unloving would it be to say, yeah, you're, I think you're good. I think it might miss you. And you know it won't. So first, it demonstrates love for those inside the church, whether that's the binding or the loosing. Whether you like the protocol or not, that's, that's why. It also demonstrates love for those outside the church. God has made it very clear that the church is to be set apart. It's to display something beautiful. When Jesus talks about how people will know that we are his disciples, what does he say? He doesn't say they'll know because you, you know, gave a lot of money away or they'll know because you look so handsome or, you know, they will know because of our love for one another. And so if we fail to rightly think through these things, if we fail to wield the king's keys of the kingdom effectively, we don't show love to those outside the church. If we aren't careful with the what and who of the gospel, we fail to display the life-saving news of the gospel to a world that is dying. Third, it shows love for the church as a whole and guards the church. There are far too many examples that I'm sure we can think of of even whole denominations and specific churches that don't guard the what and the who of the gospel. What is a true gospel confession? Who is a true gospel confessor? And it kills the church. Letting wolves in and diseases fester is not how we treat Christ's bride. 
And then finally, it demonstrates love for Christ. We need to be faithful to what Jesus has entrusted to us. The Bible talks about the church being purchased with Christ's blood. So let's not play fast and loose with something so precious. Let's not shirk the responsibility, the job description of every member that's been handed over to us. Jesus has given this authority not just to one apostle, not just to all the apostles, not just to church leaders, but he's given this authority to the church to guard the what and the who of the gospel. What is a true gospel confession and who is a true gospel confessor? When we do that, when we guard the gospel with care, with love, we do that for the good of one another. We do that for the good of a world that needs this life-saving news. And we do it ultimately for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege it is to be called your children and the stunning reality that you would invite us to be involved in your mission God, I pray that we as a church would be faithful in this responsibility, that we as individual members, that we as a whole church body, that members of churches here that are visiting from other churches, that we would all be faithful in guarding the what and the who of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the good news. Help us to be a church that is marked by the life-saving hope that we find in Christ alone and displays that to a watching world by our love for one another. God, you are good. We thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.